0: Hello and welcome back to the Director's Wall podcast, season two, Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, A.J. Gonzalez.
1: And I'm Brian Connolly, the other guy.
0: All right. So when Willard and PBR Street Gang arrive at the Dolong Bridge. Oh, wait, are we done? We're done with Apocalypse Now? We're
1: done. Uh, So it was, you know, it's funny. I totally went into like Apocalypse Now withdrawal. And, like, I really wanted to watch it again. <laughs> after our episode, I was like, man, I really want to watch that. That movie's good. I want to watch it again. And I'm like, no, no, let's take a break. Like, take, like, a, at least a year off. Yeah. And then I can watch it, like, next summer. But that's how good that movie is. If we can watch it five times, like, look at, read everything about it, record a 3 hour episode. And even after all that, I'm not satisfied. I want. I wish there was another version that we hadn't seen yet that just showed up. That we could be like, oh, the tv version where they did something <laughs> I like i just i that movie's so good and we could easily talk about it again for another three hours but we must move on <laughs> we must move on with it just like coppola moved on it took him years of dwelling on it but then even he had to move on to something else and we're going to cover that uh, in this episode where we talk about one from the heart but first what wine are you drinking what Coppola wine we always feature a Coppola wine Is this a repeat that you got or what? Uh, No, I don't think it is. It's
0: the Coppola Diamond Collection Chardonnay 2018. So a Mm. white wine. Uh, Let's see. On the back, it says uh, Chardonnay has juicy flavors of pears, tropical fruit, and citrus with alluring aromas of spice and toasted oak and finishes with a light, creamy texture. Delicious with shellfish, poultry, and appetizers. Ooh. Uh, It is pretty good. I'm a fan of white wines just in general. I know that I pick up the citrus, pear, and oak. Maybe I will a bit later on, but it does have like a a smooth, I guess, creamy texture since that's what it says it's supposed to have.
1: Couldn't, couldn't you just like with any wine if they just told you you'd just be like yeah sure yeah it's creamy or it's it does it's not creamy like whatever like I don't know enough about it that I'll just believe anything they say or does my mind will just tell me I'll be like sure yeah I can taste that apple <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, yeah if, if well if, I have, you have what, what tell I tell me what are you drinking <laughs> I think this is one you did, because I remember you described the label, but this is the Director's Coppola uh, Pinot Noir 2017. I believe you had this one. I think It's got so. a picture of like the, it's like the movie, the little, what, what do you call those? The old movies that you spun it and it. It's a zoetrope. Wait, I'm an idiot. <laughs> it's like a zoetrope on it. And uh yeah, and uh, it's really good. Like You already read the label on this one, so, and actually there are no, there's no story other than, I'll just read this again, in case people didn't listen to one when he had this. This label is a replica of 19th century art used in a zoetrope, producing the illusion of a moving picture. This unique Sonoma wine honors the uncompromising standards necessary to make great films and wine. And this is really one of the best couple of wines I've had. Like, they're all really good. But this is just like a good, bold red. It's great. And it's good because I've stopped drinking liquor for a few months because I overdid it because my birthday was a week ago. I turned 40. And I drank so much because I was learning how to make tiki drinks. So I Ah. had a lot of sugar and a lot of rum. And then I was like, maybe I just need to, like – tone that down for at least a month because i want to eat some candy on halloween so i'm going to tone down the sugary stuff and just have a nice glass of red wine because it's good for your heart so uh whose turn is it to take the plot i believe it's your turn okay this is an easy one this is much easier than apocalypse now all right so we're doing one from the heart 1981. A pretty basic story. It's sort of, I guess you can call it a romantic comedy, though it's not terribly romantic nor comedic in many parts of the movie In other parts it's dramatic. But uh, this romantic drama comedy is about Hank, played by Frederick Forrest. And he is m- dating and living with his girlfriend, Franny, played by Terry Garr. They've been together for five years. It's their fifth anniversary and the 4th of July. They each give each other a present. She gives him two tickets to Bora Bora because her job is doing the window dressing at sort of a travel agency, in and this is all in Las Vegas. And he, you don't really know what he does exactly. Like he kind of has a tow truck, I guess. He's like a tow truck. He's a tow truck driver, right? Is that seems like he works at like a junkyard. They say that's how they first met. he picked the junkyard guy. He's kind of like a blue collar sort of a Frederick Forrest sort of character. And he gives her the deed to their crappy little house being like, happy anniversary, babe, I bought our house, it's ours. And both of them are kind of like, hmm, about their presence, because he doesn't really want to travel because he wants to save money. And she doesn't really want to own the house because it's not great. And then it kind of turns into sort of a fight. And they kind of realize that maybe they aren't meant to be together and maybe they should break up. So she leaves goes to stay with her friend, who she works with, played by Lainey Kazan, and then he goes to hang out with his good friend Mo, played by Harry Dean Stanton, with a terrible perm, and he kind of looks like disco stew. And it's like the worst that Harry Dean Stanton has ever looked, but he's still great. <laughs> <laughs> basically, it takes place in the, over the course of like one night, maybe two nights, as they kind of go about trying to date somebody else, where she meets uh, Ray, played by Rel Julia, who's a pianist at a local kind of casino bar. And then he runs into, I'm going to mess her name up, Na- Nastasia Kinsky. is that right? Nas- Nas- yeah, I think, think that's how you say it, sure. Nastasia. Nastasia Kinsky uh, plays Layla, and she's a circus performer, sort of dancer, uh, tightrope walker, acrobat sort of person, but like in a Vegas way. Uh, And so they're basically over the course of one of a a night, they kind of go on these dates with these other people the whole time kind of realizing that maybe especially Mo or especially Hank realizing that he really wants to be with Franny. And a part of their problem is that he kept cheating on her. He slept with other people and she was very uh, true to him, but he kind of just didn't know what he wanted. And they kind of ultimately seem like they want different things in life. And it's the night of them kind of figuring out whether they want to be together, want to be with other people. And that's the gist of the plot. It's a pretty basic plot. But what the movie, what makes the movie special is these insane visuals and the way the movie was made, which we will talk about. Uh, It's not a straightforward movie about people like you'd expect from hearing that plot. This is a really crazy production history and it's a really crazy looking movie. And if you've never seen this movie, it's definitely worth seeing once, at least for the nutty visuals. Like it really is like more so I think than any other Coppola movie to this point, like the most like him really showing off like in every shot and every scene, like all the different kind of visual tricks and different, like it feels almost like a student film in the way of trying to impress us with all this camera and cinematic trickery.
0: I totally agree in that I would recommend people watch it once just to see, like, just to see what it's like, because uh, it is a very different, unique film. However, I didn't really care for this. <laughs> <A> <laughs> is this the first it.
1: time you've seen it?
0: No, this is the second time I've seen it. I saw it, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago. Uh, back when it was only available on VHS. I rented that from a local video store.
1: (laughs) I saw it when they they re-released it and remastered it in 2003. And I saw it in the theater and it was the first time I ever saw it. And I loved it. I was blown away by this movie. I think it's one of the best looking movies I've ever seen.
0: It certainly is a good looking movie. Uh, there are things about it I like, I do like the, the exaggerated look of it, the lighting and the sets and the, uh, like the, the tangents into fantasies and daydreams, but the uh, actual plot uh, about these characters I, I didn't connect with or care for. I guess I don't care for
1: the characters. And I think that's the complaint that a lot of people had, like, when it came out. The few people that saw this movie, and this movie was a monumental, notorious box office failure. It cost $23 million in 1981, and it made (laughs) $800,000. So that's a big loss of money. And the main complaint from critics and audiences was that, like, they couldn't connect with the people, and I totally get that because it's – I don't – I guess when you watch this movie, and I've seen this twice now, I'm confused by its intentions in a way because I are we supposed to want them to get back together? Because I don't want them to get back together. I want them to be with these other people. They don't seem like they should be together at all. Like, Terry Garr should totally go off with Rel Juliet to Bora Bora, and Frederick Forrest actually should probably just be alone and not date anybody. Because <laughs> he seems That's like exactly. And so by the end of the movie, when they're getting back together, you're just it's kind of sad because you're like, but they shouldn't be back together. So I don't know if that is the point or that they totally messed it up and we were supposed to the whole time long yearn for them to get back together. But I don't think anyone watching this movie has ever felt that.
0: Yeah, I feel like the movie has got to want them to get back together because they do and it all like builds – Towards that, but it's really unsatisfying when um, when Terry Gard does go back to Frederick Forrest. Anyway, so let's talk about the 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 uh, the artifice of this thing. So, which is tied into its production history. So after Coppola spent you know years going mad in the jungle with hurricanes destroying a set and actors having heart attacks because they couldn't handle being out in the jungle. And I mean, who could, you know, it's not Martin Sheen's fault <laughs> though he was smoking a lot at the time. He's uh, like, the next movie I do is going to be totally in a studio. It's going to be all on sound stages, on sets. And then Coppola being grandiose as he often is bought a studio bought a whole studio, uh, like a series of sound stages and established his own production company. And he was gonna be like a movie studio. He was gonna be the studio head, but also direct movies. And they were gonna produce other people's movies. So every shot of this movie is on a sound stage. There's no location shooting. It took up nine sound stages. And if you've ever been anywhere near a sound stage, you know that they are gigantic. They're huge. You know, being all artificial, all on set, it, it really looks like it's a set. Uh, um, and I think that's part of the the appeal. Like it was supposed to harken back to musicals of the 1930s and 40s and even 50s. Uh, I don't, did we mention that this is sort of
1: a musical? No, no, we haven't gone into that yet. Okay. <laughs> We'll get there. There's a lot
0: but, to talk. about. It's sort of a musical. So Coppola was gonna do, uh, like he had developed this new way of filming movies. He called it electronic cinema, and today it would just be digital film. Like he wanted to, he's basically gonna rehearse a movie like so much that when they went in to shoot it, they could just shoot it. And because it was all on a set, they could just go from one set to the next and they wouldn't have to break for take. So it would be like filming a play or filming like a live TV broadcast. And he had a trailer, like a master control room trailer outfitted with monitors and stuff. And he tried directing the movie from that trailer, which didn't really work for anybody. <laughs> but, uh, like you really feel that there's a lot of, um, it's not hiding the fact that these are sets it wants you to know that this is all artificial and the lighting reflects that they're like big bold reds and greens just cast
1: uh, just cast all over the screen it's totally unnatural lighting yeah the sets are crazy like it seeing this is, de- this is definitely worth seeing on the big screen if it ever plays anywhere go see it because it's like I think it's just beautiful, like I love, like there's this amazing matte paintings, like there's scenes of like Terry Gar walking from their house to this to the Las Vegas Strip. And you can totally tell it's a matte painting and little models, but it looks amazing, it looks great. And there's like when they're driving in the car and the landscape passing by them is clearly like handmade models and things like on a track or something. It has like, it feels kinda, feels kinda like Peewee's Playhouse or something. It's, it's a really odd in, in feeling. And I love it. And it, it reminds me a little bit of Fellini, a little bit of like Michael Powell and Pressburger, like those like movies that don't deny that they're a fantasy, or some of the really good '70s, '80s Ken Russell stuff, where it's like they're really gonna lean into the fantasy element of it, not even hide it, it's not even subtle. And there's and it and it's and it makes it feel like a musical. And this is a musical in a way because it looks like a musical, and there's dancing. But what's interesting is nobody really sings in the movie. It's this soundtrack, this kind of telling you the this, this story on the soundtrack. It, the soundtrack's by Tom Waits and Crystal Gale, Loretta Lynn's sister. And it's an amazing soundtrack, it's so good. And it just basically almost acts like Martin Sheen's narration in Apocalypse Now, <laughs> where it's telling you sort of what's going on, what's going on in people's heads, what's going on in the story, From beginning to end, like most of the movie has this music in it, and it's and it's and it's such a part of the movie. Like, it's it's as much a character, like Tom Waits and Crystal Gale are as much characters in this movie as Frederick Forrest and Terry Gar are. And it's I think it's probably the best thing of this movie is the music, and it's the only thing that it was nominated for in an Oscar, too, was the soundtrack, which is weird for a Coppola movie because usually his movies got lots of stuff, but uh. The, the sound, the, did you like the soundtrack? Did, are you a Tom Waits fan? I am not a Tom Waits fan.
0: I'm not not a Tom Waits fan. Like, I don't hold any grudges against him or anything. I just don't get it. Like, I hear his music, and I'm like, okay, like, not not for me. What what else is on the radio or whatever? <laughs> They're not
1: playing uh, Tom Waits on the radio. I've I, never heard Tom Waits on the radio.
0: <laughs> I know. It was just an expression. <laughs> I have no idea how I've heard Tom Waits, but I've heard Tom Waits. <laughs> but yeah, so like, yeah, on, on his own, I'm not a fan of his music. And so I wasn't really into the, I wasn't into the score on its own. I wouldn't listen to it again, but I felt there were a lot of times when it did really fit the movie. Right, like he got the right vibe and him and Crystal Gale kind of talk singing to each other. It had its own like nice uh, nice appeal to it, though it was a bit like redundant because it's not unclear how the characters are feeling. You know, we can see that and the lighting emphasizes that. And then now we have these other people singing over it exactly what's going on it it all (laughs) felt a bit redundant but like the final the actual song one from the heart i do like that song in the
1: movie this movie it's movie's interesting because you said that it's sort of him doing the opposite of apocalypse now but then it ended up getting so out of control in its own way just like Coppola likes to do (laughs) where the movie was originally supposed to be like a small, easy thing. And then it skyrocketed from $2 million to $23 million. And basically he had it, all of Zoetrope Studios writing on the success of this movie. Like if this movie failed, the studio would fail. And guess what? It did and it did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I appreciate that he put everything in. Like you took over a studio you did what every filmmaker dreams of. It's like, you get to own your own studio and you're just going to make whatever you want. And this is definitely like, this is back to him making sort of a weird, like this is not like The Godfather. This is not an accessible movie by any means. And he really, like always, made the movie he wanted to make. And it's, there is no, like whether this movie works for you or not in terms of the plot, there is no movie like this. Like it is very unique in the way that it looks, in the way that it feels. Like, I can't think of another movie that has this weird phoniness to it intentionally. And like, he could have easily, because he's Francis Ford Coppola, could have easily closed down the Vegas strip and shot a movie there because he had that kind of clout and power, especially after making Apocalypse Now and The Godfathers and all that. But instead he wanted to make his own kind of weird version of of, of of Las Vegas and, he said he was inspired by musicals, but also by the made-for-TV movies of John Frankenheimer. And you can definitely see that in, like, there's a lot of long takes. There's these, uh, like, it's like, if, it's those those TV movies in the 50s by Frankenheimer and a lot of other people, uh, Rod Serling made one, um, Arthur Penn, they all were done live. They were done live in the studio, and they would switch the cameras while it was, while it was being broadcast and while it was being shot. So it's almost like watching a play, but you would have it, but it would be kind of cinematic in a way. The camera would move, you'd have angles. And he wanted to do that with his little control booth thing. And you can see that in the movie, like the way that he tries to tell the story without cutting and with the camera moving. Like I love the scene with Frederick Ford and Herding stand in his apartment and then the wall kind of disappears and you can then see Terry Gar in the apartment that she's at, but it's all done in one take, in one shot. And that's done with a special kind of screen where it looks like white, and then you can change the lighting and you're actually seeing through the screen. And George Clooney uses it very well in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is the only other movie I've ever seen that kind of device used in.
0: Yeah, I haven't either. Um, I have seen it in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which I think is a really good movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you see it a lot if you, uh, see, watch plays, go to the theater. It's Mm -hmm. a common, uh, trait used there. And it's used in the movie the same way as it is, uh, as it is here. It's almost like that scene in Annie Hall where it's a split screen between Woody Allen talking to his therapist and Diane Keaton talking to her therapist and they're like almost call and responding to each other and you're getting the total how totally different they view uh, the state of their relationship and you get that that same effect here but without the without a cinematic trick without doing split screen they're all in one room separated by this cloth and so we heard harry dean stanton and frederick forrest talk about like his side of the relationship and then then the lights change and they go into shadow and they just kind of stay still. And then now we see Terry Gar and her friend talk about the relationship now from her point of view. And then eventually there is a cut and we're in, we're in her friend's apartment. Uh, One of my favorite takes that you you can only do on a set is when um, Terry Gar is considering uh, going along with Raul Julia and they've, uh, they're in the uh, elevator going back to her friend's apartment. And then she turns around, she decides, okay, now I'll go with him. She gets back in the elevator. And then the elevator doors, we just see her waiting there in the elevator. Then they open up, and she's not only on the ground floor, but on the ground floor in the very front of the hotel. And there's <laughs> Raul Julia waiting by his car. And the way they did that was they were two sets. There was the set of the, uh, the hallway on one side of a soundstage and then the set of the front of the hotel on the other side of the soundstage. And when she got in the elevator, they rotated the elevator over to the, uh, to the front of the hotel set. And so it was all done in one take. And it's totally unrealistic, but it's, it, it's, it's, a,
1: great, it's a great shot. It's a great transition. I really like the one scene where it's her dressing the window of the travel. Year. She rolled Julia and then said, ask her on a date. And in one take, in one shot, the camera's able to go inside and outside. And the sound changes as whoever's on the other side of the glass, as they're kind of flirting with each other for the first time. That is really well done. And that is really good. That I, kind of I,
0: stuff I, I like. I even like the, the artificial lighting like at some point, this is a movie is shot by Vittorio Storaro, same cinematographer as uh, Apocalypse Now. And he decided that, that um, Franny was going to be red and Hank was going to be green. So you'll see those two colors uh, dominate their scenes. And at one point, it seems like re- it's really weird where... Hank, there's a shot of Frederick Forrest and the background is all red because Terry Garr is talking to him and it looks like he's in hell. <laughs> Just didn't come across uh didn't come across as intended in, in that shot. But like yeah, I, I like the artificial lighting. Uh and the map paint when I say the sets look uh obviously inauthentic they look obviously fake what I, I guess what I really mean is the matte paintings the backdrops they all look fake when um Frederick Forrest and Nastasia Kinski go to his like desert uh his desert car graveyard place like whatever it is he does there Wrecking Company um yeah it's obvious that the the backdrop is just like a desert painting and the Sky is a total you know artificial has artificial coloring to it, and it has its own charms in a way, but uh, to me, in certain scenes it's just that there's this real disconnect, I guess because the the story of the characters having this relationship problem is so like real and like gritty for lack of a better term like these people are these are they feel like real people and the relationship problem they're having is real you know they've been together so long that uh, they're almost like too comfortable with each other and when they give each other anniversary presents they each give each other something that they actually want she gives him plane tickets to bora bora and he gives her the deed to the house and I mean, that's like a very real problem, you know, if there was like, uh, you'd see that in, I don't know, like a Noah Bombach movie or something, <laughs> whoever's making the relationship dramas these days. But then to have that story then against this, this fantasy world, I just, I like there was a strong disconnect for me until it went into fantasy when they would, when she has, when Franny has her uh, dance sequence with Raul Julia. Yeah. And when um, Nastasia Kinski does her tightrope act and Frederick Forrest uh, conducts uh, like a, a symphony with the horns of the crushed cars. And it sounds like really like wonky and out of tune. I like those moments like that. That's where you start to feel kind of like the magic that I yeah. like Coppola was going for.
1: And, and I feel like this is Coppola kind of going into a new, definitely a new phase of his career, not just because it's now the eighties, but he's definitely like, we're going to see more of this sort of like, his movies get a little more theatrical and more dream like, and he's more into dreams and like, you're going to get more of this kind of stuff in Rumblefish and more of this in, Dracula, and definitely in his last few movies, uh, like Twixt and all that, where he's like really into just sort of like this kind of dream logic and dream imagery and this more theatrical way of making a movie, whereas like Godfather and the conversation and a lot of Apocalypse Now. I mean, Apocalypse Now gets real dreamy too, but it's a little less theatrical than this. Like Apocalypse Now definitely feels like people in the jungle making a movie. But he made a decade of movies that felt very real in their way and now this is like him going into this sort of world of artifice and i feel this movie's really ahead of its time it reminded me a lot of like joe versus the volcano which also has this kind of fakeness to that movie uh, oh you're I right yeah yeah the moon you like volcano. it's like joe versus the volcano Uh, a little bit of like a wilder napalm like sort of like these 90s like it feels like wes anderson has made movies that kind of feel like this where it's like all stuff that's made like there's like so much of like life aquatic and the uh the 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 hotel one whatever that one was called uh, grand Budapest Grand budapest where he has this sort of like you can tell they're set yeah, you can tell that there's sets, and but that's okay. Like, it's you're into this sort of old way the movies were made. And not a lot of people had made a movie like this in a long time. Uh, like, the, make a movie with all in the studio with sets was sort of what Coppola and his peers were trying to get away from in the 70s. Like, that was like the new Hollywood was like, no, we're going to grab a camera, we're going to go on the road, we're going to go to a place, we're going to make it real. And then him coming back to like, no, no, let's go... <laughs> let's go to a studio and let's make it all. Let's have total control and make it this like big theatrical studio thing. Um, And it sadly didn't work to his favor, but he doesn't stop making movies, you know, like this, like Dracula. When we get to that, there's so much of that that is amazing, huge sets. And it's very, uh, it's theatrical, just like this. A lot of um, amazing matte paintings and just like that. I feel like probably after this, like Dracula and Bram Stoker Jack is the closest to One from the Heart.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Having not seen all of these uh, 80s Coppola movies, but the ones I have definitely don't come anywhere close to uh, you know, this uh, fantasy uh, aesthetic that is like a major, major part
1: of One from the Heart. It's also interesting because he shot it in uh, the aspect ratio of older movies as well, which I'm sure probably threw people at the time. Like we're used to directors playing with that, like Wes Anderson and what have you, but like in Paul Thomas Anderson, but it's shot at one, three, seven, one. I think that's what it's called. The
0: more square shape. Yeah, it's a total square, um, which in the commentary, he talks about how that, you know, was the way it was the original aspect ratio for movies and he thought that since he was shooting a musical and the way these old Fred Astaire Gene Kelly movies were shot was in that ratio he would also shoot it in that ratio which he felt showed off the human form from head to foot uh very well as opposed to widescreen where you saw more of a vista you know you saw like all the stuff on the sides but for a to see someone head to foot, if they were going to do some, you know, big dance number, it meant you couldn't get in really close to them without losing the their head or their feet.
1: And we talked about that on the Finian's Rainbow episode, the last musical that he made, where people complained that you couldn't see Fred Astaire's feet in a lot of the dance sequences because it was done in a more widescreen, epic way. So he learned his lesson. <laughs> Gene Kelly actually was uncredited on this movie as one of the choreographers for the dance sequence. Like he helped out with, uh, like, I don't know how how much he was involved, but he was involved at some point in the, on the making of, you can see him on the set hanging out as with Michael Powell, who's also on the set hanging out a bunch. I don't know if he got some feedback because it definitely feels like if you've ever seen, have you ever seen that Michael Powell stuff? Like FIFA, Baghdad, FIFA or Baghdad, yeah. Red Shoes, yeah. Um, those movies have this great sort of theatrical dream, like especially The Red Shoes, which I highly recommend if anyone's never seen that movie, you should definitely see The Red Shoes. That's another just great uh, tragic story with an amazing color and just like the visuals of it are nuts. Let's um, talk about the people in this movie. All right. <laughs> Let's start with our two main people. So Frederick Forrest. Coppola loves Frederick Forrest. He loves him more than any filmmaker has ever loved Frederick Forrest. Like he's, This is now the third movie they did together. He was in The Conversation as the couple having the conversation. And then he was in Apocalypse Now as the as the chef. And now here he is in this movie as Hank. Worked his way as, up to lead. Is, and is this... I think, that, like, I think couple maybe, like, I don't know a lot about Frederick Forrest, but, like, he really wants him to be the lead of a movie, because then, after this, he did Ham, he produced Hammett, which is also Frederick Forrest in the late, so he was really banking on, in the early 80s, on Frederick Forrest being the lead actor that we all want in our movies. Yeah, he
0: wanted <laughs> Frederick Forrest in that movie, in Hammett, and, like, pushed Frederick Forrest onto whatever... Uh, distributor was going to um you know nationally distribute the movie since that was also a zoetrope uh film which he produced and was heavily involved in how heavily may be the topic of a future episode but you know studios are like frederick who what huh then frederick Forrest gets an oscar nomination for his role in the rose and so now and that i mean you know the I mean, he's a good actor. He's on the rise, I guess. And like, there was no argument after that because Coppola could say, like, "Well, that's that's your marketing, starring Academy Award nominated actor Frederick Forrest." So that's how he locked down Frederick Forrest for for Hammett, and then also for One from the Heart. He is so he is good. He's doing a good job, but I don't like his character. Like, he doesn't really play a likable character. Relatable, I mean, yeah, sure, in some ways, you know. uh, You know, we've all had those unkind moments. (laughs) But, uh, like, overall, I'm not really rooting for this guy. Like, if things work out fine for him, like, okay, good. But like his arc in the movie, like he starts out like being kind of a dick, and you would expect then, like okay, then him and his girlfriend they break up. You expect the arc is well, he's gonna learn now to not be a dick, and you know, uh, show show how he's changed, how he's softened and become kinder in a way, and then and then win her back. But he doesn't really go through that. No.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he just, he kind of, he meets this uh, acrobat dancer. They have like a nice passionate night, and he wakes up all sad, being like, oh, I missed my girlfriend. And that's kind of (laughs) it. That's sort of what he goes through. And uh, it's, you definitely, I feel like you definitely want it to really work out for Terry Gar. You want cause she's great and you really like her character a lot. And his character, you just kinda like you want her to get away from him because he yeah, like you said, yeah. he's just kind of a dick. He's not a bad person. He's not so he's not
0: different. abusive, you know.
1: No. But he's just kinda like a a, a dud.
0: <laughs> exactly. I think Gene Siskel used those exact words. <laughs> or maybe he called them dolts, but he was referring to both of the characters. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like, yeah, I don't like Frederick Forrest's character. It's I'm not going to say Frederick Forrest is bad in the movie. Like, he's playing the character, like, well, but there's just not a lot going on. And, um, I, like, at the end, when he's trying to win back Terry Gar a- as she's boarding the plane, ba- like, it's like, I, I don't know when that cliche started of, like, running to the airport to stop someone. Yeah but it, it like it doesn't feel that much of like a we're we're relying on this we're backsliding into this trope in this movie and he says to her like well like what what why do you want to go with him because he sings to you like i'll sing to you and then he starts to sing like you are my sunshine or or something
1: mm-hmm.
0: like that and it's it just doesn't work cuz he hasn't under, undergone the change to just n- know like like well, I'll just I'll sing to her if that's what she wants. If the movie wants us to to buy that as like he, he has undergone a change, I don't buy it because I I don't he didn't really go through a, a journey before mm-hmm. then other than realizing that he didn't want his girlfriend sleeping with Raul Julia. Yeah, I was reminded of, I mean just because I saw it so many times as a kid as a like multiplicity the movie multiplicity with all the Michael Keatons you you could want, Mm -hmm. all the best Michael Keatons. And Andy McDowell like leaves him and before she leaves him and she's actually talking to one of his clones, she says, you never fix things like this house. You say you're gonna fix it up, but you never do. And so then Michael Keaton and his clones, they they work together and they fix up the house and he brings her back and shows her, look, I fixed up the house. But Michael Keaton, the original Michael Keaton in that movie has undergone this realization where he, you know, like, oh, I, m- I made all these clones to make my life easier, but I was only making my life easier. I wasn't making my wife's life easier, my family's life easier as well. And so this actual literal act of him fixing the house, him doing something, I'll believe that more in multiplicity, which I've talked <laughs> about more than I th- ever thought I would than in one from the heart, where he's like, "Okay, like, hey, I'll sing to you too." It's I, I just I, I, don't, I don't buy it, and I mean it's part of the fantasy, so I'm willing to let it go. But the fact that N- Nastasia Kinski, you know, the beautiful, uh, inappropriately young for Frederick Forrest, at the you know age-wise, she's like nineteen. Around this time and he is definitely forty, is just like, Hey, do you want to meet me at the Fremont Hotel at 9 p.m.? I think even Harry Dean Stanton says
1: you son of a gun, you did it. Most highly implausible thing I've ever seen in my life.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean I'll let it go because it's a movie and it's you know fantasy. And if those characters ended up together, fine. If they didn't, fine. This is one of those movies where this guy needs to work on himself, you know, before he can get with anyone. Yeah. (laughs) Before he, like, leaves his girlfriend for someone or gets back with his girlfriend. He needs some work. And you would think that maybe the movie is um, commenting on that. Like, we're going to show you this old-fashioned style romance from the 40s or 50s where a couple has a fight and then they get back together because the production code says they have to. But you would expect that maybe they're going to subvert that and the couple isn't going to get back together, but it's still going to be a good happy ending because that's the right thing for these people. When they get back together, it really does feel like production code era. We just can't have them not end up together at the end. Okay. So Terry uh, Gar. Terry Gar is great.
1: Yeah. She's great. And she also was in the conversation. And she was also in the Black Stallion produced by Coppola. And she's good. And it's interesting. I feel like a lot of Coppola and his peers like was really into Terry Gar for whatever reason. Like she was in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. A few years after this, she's in Scorsese's After Hours. So definitely like these these filmmakers of these new Hollywood filmmakers were really into Terry Gar, for whatever reason, as an woman or whatever they saw in her that they liked. Uh, she's definitely got kind of like a built-in quirkiness, just because she's Terry Gar, so she already is not just a normal person in the movie. She's, like, she's there's, there's something a little quirky and off about her, which is great, like the, the, that, that Terry Gar touch that we love so much. And she's really good in this movie. She's really funny, and it's and it like. And like she too will get an Oscar nomination, but for Tootsie, I think, right? Like a few yes. years after this. For Tootsie, um, no, same year, same year. Oh, was it? Was it the same year? And uh, yeah, I really like the whole. Like the movie is her movie, in my in my opinion. Like this movie is about her character and her, and that's why the ending's all the more tragic. Because <laughs> you really you want her to go off with Raul Julia. You want her to like have a much better life. She deserves a much better life. <laughs>
0: Yeah, she. so Terry Gar, you're right, does have this, like, every woman quality. It was one thing I liked about both of, of the actors is that they felt like normal, average people, you know. Um, and they, I mean, they kind of looked like average, normal people without, uh, you know, I don't mean any, uh, like, disrespect to their actual physical you know appearances, but like, yeah, they they don't look like, like you know, super glamorous, like uh, you know, magazine cover people, acting like they're just average people that work, uh, you know, a punch in, punch out job at a travel agency or a junkyard. These really feel like average people, and and so that's good. That part of the story works. I. And then again, but then you put them in a weird house where half of it's lit red and half of it's lit green. And there's like a, then it starts to not work. But um, yeah, yeah. Terry Gar is really good at uh, she she lands all the jokes she's supposed to land. She earns all the sympathy she's supposed to get. Uh, I mean, just an all around like great performance.
1: I agree. <laughs> my favorite actor in the movie, my favorite scene is Alan Garfield as the maitre d' at the restaurant where Ralph Julia works. <laughs> so and it's my favorite scene in the whole movie. And it's my favorite performance in the whole movie where she, where for Franny, Terry Garth finally is like, okay, I'm going to go meet this dream man at his job. He's going to, he's a pianist. He's a singer. I'm going to watch him sing. He's going to be so romantic. She goes to this place, turns out Ralph Julia is a waiter, who will be allowed to sing occasionally if someone doesn't show up or if they think it's kind of implied. And when she runs in the restaurant, like, Real Julia has, like, three plates of food. He's got, like, Belgian waffles and another meal and, like, a bottle of champagne, of wine, glasses of wine on a tray. And Alan Garfield, his boss, is kind of to help making him move fast. And Real Julia sits down because he sees Terry going. He's like, oh, yours is great. Like, let's talk. Like, here, have this wine. Eat these waffles. And Alan Garfield comes up and he's totally pissed off. And he's like, why aren't you working? What are you doing? And then like the whole restaurant's kind of falling apart in a way where like the other people are like, wait a minute, that's by, by, like Rebecca De Mornay. Did you recognize her? Yes. At the table being like, that's my Belgian waffle. And oh, did you know Rebecca De Mornay at this time, Rebecca De Mornay was dating Harry Dean Stanton. What? They, they were a couple. <laughs> Good for you, Harry Dean Stanton. But while took they the made words it, right out did, of my mouth. They were dating for years when this movie was made. So I'm guessing maybe he brought her into this, being like, oh, you should bring my girlfriend, Rebecca De Mornay, into this uh, in this movie. But it's, it's Alan Garfield is freaking out, and he can't pronounce the other way his name His the other way his name is H- Javier, right? Javier, why he can't you see- be more like Javier? I'm happy I found you. I'm happy I found
0: you too. Look, I was really gonna sing tonight, yeah, but, happens, but what so happened was that the, at the last minute, the owner pulled the plug, you believe it? I had a you real first excuse class me, act, no. What are you trying to do to me, Raymond? Me. I Barney, would you <laughs> mind? Please, oh, yeah. Excuse me, would you mind? I'm trying to have a reunion here with my friend. Oh, really? I'm trying a to have a coffee great. shop here, Raymond.
1: Excuse me, I think those what? are my waffles. Waffle? We have plenty of waffles. You're getting me
0: very mad, uh, Raymond. Can You're I have some ver- arthritis oh, here? Javier, Javier, it's, it's, it's Javier. Raymond, why can't you be more like Javier? He sings, but he's completely satisfied with being a waiter. Are you listening to me? Javier, horseradish, Javier. You're through. You're washed up here. You never could sing. You can't sing your way out of a paper bag. I am an artist. Don't give it to me. Give it to him. I've never been treated so badly in a restaurant in all really? my life. i so-so. This place is the pits. And you, Man. my friend, you, you wouldn't know a tit from a tortilla. That should take hey, care of the bill plus tips. <laughs> Your service Don't is think. terrible. Whose fault What's is that? that? I think he go. just got fired. That's okay. Inspire me. Let's get out of here. On you, buddy, I'll see you fire. someday on the strip when I'm singing. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Save me some passes in the street. Hey, you like I what is that? Fella, what am I, a fella? I have to own this joint. A bunch of cannibals.
1: And Alan Garfield, of course, also great in the conversation. A couple, of really, is Alan Garfield. And who doesn't love to watch Alan Garfield get frustrated and mad? That's like what he's good at. Like he, he's the king of that in movies. Like. Like, I love watching Alan Garfield get flustered and angry, angry little man.
0: That's a scene uh, right out of a movie from the 1940s or 50s. It'd be like, you know, like uh, like William Powell and Myrna Loy and Powell is just getting off snappy one-liners, being ultra charming.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Don't you kind of wish that maybe, what if, what if this movie starred Tom Waits as opposed to Frederick Forrest? Like that, maybe that would have worked better maybe because Tom Waits yeah. great great actor he already doing the music so let's have him be the schlubby guy that's trying to get back together with Terry Garr and that way you'd hear the soundtrack of Tom Waits voice it's like almost like his thoughts like that would add a doing, different layer which, to it right,
0: <laughs> right? It, it would be better almost if um yeah if the 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 voices singing all the thoughts that the characters are experienced were the voices of were the voices of the actors. If it was Tom Waits or if it was maybe Frederick Forrest could sing, I don't know. Terry Gar <laughs> apparently could sing and yeah. dance. Uh, you know, like w- well enough so they'd see Coppola decided we won't have you sing. I'll have someone else sing. Still a professional singer, but you know. Th- it's almost like self-defeating and I want to make a musical, but he's making a new type of musical. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about...
1: Mad Dog, Mad Dog time, time, The Paper Paperboy, Boy. Mordecai, After Last Season. The... the World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films the world is wrong about available on Paperhouse network wherever you get your podcasts
0: all right so the next performance we should talk about is my favorite thing about this movie is ral julia ral julia comes on screen as like a like a fantasy character and lives up to that he is just so so like charming and handsome and enchanting and it just like this great like fantasy figure come to life and he dances and he dances so wonderfully well and he like when he starts to go in the shadow and you're like wait is that but that's real no that's really him dancing like yes oh my god Mm -hmm. i love it i love it i loved every time
1: he was on screen i just got really happy yeah, it made, it made me really miss Ralph Julia. It reminded me of, like, how great he was and how short his career was, sadly, that he was only in movies for, like, 20 years, I think. He died yeah. pretty young. I don't remember what he died of, young and quick, whatever. Uh, I don't remember
0: what he died of either, but he died at the age of, like, 54, yeah. uh, right after Street Fighter. And being, um, you know, a, a man in my mid-30s, Meaning, I was a child in the '90s. I knew Raul Julia as as Gomez Adams and M. Bison from Street Fighter, and like just from those two movies. Though, like when you watch those movies again as an adult, or even as like a like a a, a teen, I'm like, well, this guy is like really good. Like he's playing these like ridiculous parts, but he's like better. Then these movies have any right to be?
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, like Street Fighter is kind of a garbage movie, but it's not because Raul Julia is so good. Like, it saves it from being just another John Claude Van Damme kick someone in the face movie to being something more interesting because Raul Julia is really given it as Bison, <laughs> and in the Adams Family movie could have been another just like here's another rehash. But he is so good. I mean, there's a lot of to love about the Adams Family movies, not just him, but like he, his Gomez is so uniquely his. It's so different than John Aston from the show. And he is so funny. And just like in this movie, he knows how to dance because he does the Mamushka in the Adams Family. Like watching him <laughs> do sort of the tango in this kind of reminded me of him dancing with Morticia in the Adams Family and him doing the, the Mamushka in the Adams Family movie. And uh, man, I love Raul Julia. He's so cool. He's so charming. He's so handsome, which is the, but again, why the movie's kind of got a problem with the story because you, how could you not want anyone to end up with Raul Julia? No, he, especially perfect. if you're in a,
0: you're in a <laughs> mediocre relationship, mediocre at best. <laughs> and uh, here's the break of you reassessing your point in life. And then Raul Julia appears, like he, he's looking at Terry Garr uh, set up her window display and the reflections make it look like he is a portrait in her display and then the camera pulls back and you realize he's outside looking in and we're looking at his reflection and it's a like wonderful entrance and you think well he's just this you know just this guy like flirting with this girl on the street but then, no, he actually delivers. And then more than that, he seems to, like, really, like, build an affection for this woman over the course of one night. Like, yeah, they spend yeah. a night together. And then they're ready to go off to Bora Bora together. And you want her to go with him. Like, once Brawl mm-hmm. Julia arrives on, the, uh, uh, on screen, they're like, oh, the movie's about him now. Well, this makes sense. <laughs>
1: I wonder what, what Coppola was trying to get at, because like he's not a clueless guy. So he must have known watching this movie that you're going to want her to go with Ralph Juliet, that it doesn't really work with them. So I feel like it must be intentional that the end is kind of sad, right? <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't imagine that he like fucked up so bad and sunk his whole studio making a movie that he didn't understand his own intentions of his movie. Like I just don't buy but he, it. But he's
0: took such big risks like having Apocalypse Now end on such a uh, not, not a down note but with such an anti-climax not like a big action ending but with mm-hmm. Martin Sheen just stabbing a guy and then quietly leaving and walking away <laughs> and what we, we like and his like his own personal holy his movie The Conversation is all about quiet moments and has a, a hero who is totally not a hero, not because he's a villain, but because he takes no action with with the final act of this murder, he hides. And then he comes out and sees what really went on. And then he goes home and plays the saxophone and like sinks further into his neuroses. Like that's such a, (laughs) you know, such a a, a non-Hollywood, non-mainstream ending. Like if you wanted to to like subvert the romantic comedy r- romantic drama really is what this is romantic drama where these the the couple doesn't get together he easily could have done that or well, the they movie- get back together but but it's supposed to be sad but it doesn't seem like it's supposed to be sad
1: but that's how everybody feels who watches this movie like my wife felt that we with Kristen with like we watched it and she was like They shouldn't be together.
0: (laughs) No, my my wife felt exactly the same way. I felt exactly the same way. (laughs) I feel no way.
1: And it's funny because this movie even talks about and references the end of Casablanca, where it's like, yeah, he had to get, you know, he had to, they had to part ways at the end of Casablanca so he could be free, so he can do his thing. And that's how this movie should end. So even in this movie, they reference the ending that this movie should have had. It should have been her flying away on that airplane, just like the end of Casablanca. But it doesn't.
0: He would have been ahead of his time because we had, like, there's often been, and I can't, it happens more often in TV shows. I can't think of a specific movie where a, a woman usually has to choose between two men that represent two different paths for her, you know, future self. And then ultimately... The right move is, of course, neither of these men. She has to choose herself. That's how the series of uh, Secret Diary of a Call Girl ended.
1: Certain seasons of Gilmore Girls end that way. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) And it's like, it's satisfying. Like, there's no romantic uh, satisfaction. But character-wise, like, okay, like, you're right. That's what belongs. That's what's right for that that character for that woman and now we have like a, a man presented with that situation does he like try to win back his girlfriend who's in like a, they're in like a stalled uh stale relationship or this new like fantasy girl who just kind of like like sparks something new in him not really in like a manic pixie dream girl kind of ways. just you know kind of like Wakes him up to like you know the other possibilities out there than living, continuing to live in this house he's been living in permanently as as like he wants to do. And of course, like I'm like the right situation or the right decision. I think for that character is is like none neither one, neither one. <laughs> he has to work on himself, the way yeah. Billy Piper had to work on herself and you know Carrie in certain scenes, uh, certain seasons of Sex and the City. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. There's one episode where she it ends with her going to lunch by herself, saying yeah. like "table for one" or something. Because um, yeah, I've watched Sex in the City. Who hasn't? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like that's the right answer for him. And going with Raúl Julia is totally the right answer for Terry Gar. And I don't know if it's just because it's Raúl Julia.
1: Yeah, maybe it's know? a casty thing. Maybe if. Frederick Forrest played the role Julia character and Ralph Julia <laughs> played the Frederick Force character. You'd be like, yeah, you got to get her back. And no, don't go off with that guy. <laughs> <Maybe> that. <laughs> or like, I wish that maybe like the movie was Frederick Forrest, like failing even harder. Like if it w- it felt like, like, like like a, look at like an eyes wide shut where it's like, they're the couple that like he goes off on a night of like, I'm going to get laid. Like I'm going to, I'll show her, I'll show me like, and then he fails and fails and fails and fails and then realizes at the end of the day, I'm too old for this, I'm not cut out for this. Like, I, like, my wife and I should, like, I'm not gonna go to orgies, I'm not that guy. Like, I gotta be married with this lady. <laughs> and so, like, if maybe the movie leaned more into sort of the foibles of trying to take a break from your relationship and realizing, because it's not like, yeah, uh, what Frederick Forrest runs into this night is worse than his relationship. It's like, you scored with this hot young lady and she's really talented, and she really likes you, and you get laid, and then you wake up in the morning, and you still miss your girlfriend. Okay. I just feel like it could have maybe done a little more of that, but I still love this movie. I don't care. (laughs) It looks, I'm such a sucker for movies that have this much style, and, like, there's so many, like, Orson Welles type shots where the camera like goes through walls and signs and like the kind of like like Citizen Kane sort of like, you can tell they built a lot of crazy contraptions just to make a cool shot.
0: Oh, yeah, Um, there's a direct homage to Citizen Kane when the the camera pushes through uh, a sign and the sign comes apart as the camera's pushing in, in a way that you can't see on screen, but you can feel it because the camera just moves through it the same way it does at the beginning of Citizen Kane. That was a conscious, uh, a conscious homage. That was how, to me, <laughs> reading about Coppola starting up Zoetrope and like, you know, Victoria Storaro is going to be a cinematographer. Dean Tavalaris is going to make the sets for not just this movie, but like all the Zoetrope movies like his friend, his friend, George Lucas, I don't know why I have to keep saying his friend, George Lucas, but like they were actually friends. You know, they, they weren't just like, like Hollywood guys that like, Oh, Hey, he's famous. I can call him up whenever I want. Like they were actually friends. It was like, Hey, like I just through like reasons, reasons found out that Kurosawa like has no American distributor for his, for his new film. I think it was Kagimusha. Yep you have a studio now do you want to distribute akira kurosawa's film and coppola said yes i do and so that movie got american distribution and so he just reminded me of of uh that shot in citizen Kane of like young orson wells young kane and joseph cotton and bernstein and they're all in the store like the 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 window of the newspaper and they're looking down at like uh the moving crews coming in and they're so excited because they're like young and they're young men they're going to conquer the world and do things their way (laughs) it's like that has to be like how coppola and dean tavalaris felt uh you know and and all all the other crew of zoetrope are like yeah like we're going to do things our way the new way and it's going to be great and it didn't work out like i feel it this reading about it is so interesting, it's so interesting behind the scenes Hollywood stuff, but it's so like, like heartbreaking. This is an interesting movie, but the fact that it had a whole studio writing on it, like it 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 tanked, and it continued to tank, and then, 18 months after Coppola bought this studio and started Zoetrope Studios, it went into foreclosure.
1: Even while making this movie, the crew had to take a pay cut. Like they had to work without pay or at 50% of what they had just to finish the movie. And they all agreed to do it for whatever insane reason, because they believed in it, I guess. Um, they also made, uh, so it was like this, Hammett, and The Escape Artist. Those were the three movies that Zoetrope made. And he wanted to do, not just have his own studio, but have sort of like his own Mercury players, his own like group of like, people that kept making things. So like Raoul and Terry Garr are both in The Escape Artist. And like we said, Frederick Force is in Hammett. It's a weird, Those are the, those. are it's weird that those are the actors he picked, but he was like really being like, Terry Garr, Frederick, Ford, like Ralph Like these are the people we're gonna just make these movies. We're gonna change them out and we're gonna make, like he should have maybe just made smaller things like originally intended. Like if this was a $2 million movie and failed, no big deal, you'd still have a studio try again, you know? But because, but I do respect that he kind of like went so big on this and on the on the making of. Did you watch the making of? Like you no. Can find it on YouTube, it's great. Anyone should try. Like, there's two making ofs. There's one directed by Monty Hillman called Inside Uh-oh. Coppola's Personality, and then there's another one just called like the making of One from the Heart, and then there's another one called the Dream Factory, I think. Uh, all great. One, the one is the more introspective one made when the DVD came out and one is made when and two, the other two were made when the movie was being made. But in the making of, he talks about Coppola has this great quote, and I'm totally paraphrasing where he's like, you might as well try and fail because if you don't try, then you've already failed. You've already lost it. So you might as well just go all the way and just completely go wrong because what else are you going to do? And that's totally what he does. He did. He, that's what he did with Apocalypse Now and succeeded because that movie ended up being a hit. And he did it again with this and ended up not being a hit. And he keeps doing, even after this movie was being a horrible failure, he will still, as we will see, keep trying to make kind of his own interesting thing. He never stops making the movies that he wants to make, or even if he is hired by a studio to make or is kind of forced into or, you know, <laughs> to make like a Godfather three or or whatever thing that he maybe wasn't his original idea, he still makes it really interesting. And he says on the making of, on the the introspective one, that pretty much everything he made after this from outsiders through the Rainmaker was to pay back the money he lost on one from the heart. That he kept making these big studio movies that weren't necessarily his original idea or something he wanted initially, but he did it because he owed so much money because this movie lost so much money which is interesting because then when you look at his filmography after the Rainmaker, he goes back to these weird little strange dreamy movies, more like one from the heart that are just like totally unique and totally bizarre. Uh, But that's not saying that outsiders, the Rainmaker doesn't have great, great movies in there. Like he never phones anything in. Like I don't think he's capable of just making some crap he doesn't care about. Like, I think he's always going to do something interesting. And we're gonna see that with all the next few many episodes Is he's gonna constantly take something that you think it's gonna be and and make it more interesting. Um, I'm really excited that we're in the 80s. Like this was, I was looking forward to this so much, like getting into, because this is where people tend to dismiss Coppola. This is when people tend to like, even people I love like Tarantino, like Tarantino has his whole like 10 movies and be done theory of, like, you need to make 10 great movies and then because you don't want to be like Coppola. You don't want to burn out. But I don't think he ever burned out. I think Coppola is going to get even more interesting going forward as he's having to make things that's maybe outside his comfort zone or making these weird little things that he's able to make eventually. Like, I'm really excited to kind of go through this journey with him. Yeah, the 80s are going
0: to be an interesting time, and this is definitely an interesting start to the 80s it's such a like it's mind-boggling like if um like you tell me that and i mean i'm using the phrase you know loosely here like uh that heaven's gate like wrecked the career of michael cimino and i watched that movie and it's this you know epic western that you can tell just costs so much money and it's like epic length three and a half hours or whatever long it was and like, okay, yeah, I can see how you put all your chips on that, and it's it'll it looks so big, it feels so big, it feels like it costs so much money, and then it breaks. You know, the 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 guy that tried to do it. And if you told me that with Apocalypse Now, like I, I like I would have believed it. Like yeah, like it's it's so big, it's so grand, it's epic in in scale, in scope, in ambitions. To think it was one from the heart that <laughs> drove Coppola into this bankruptcy that took you know decades <laughs> for him to come out of that like altered his career in such a way that you know it took like a long time for him to like fully recover you know in air quotes from it because like you're saying we're i think we'll see that the movies he made after this are still interesting and auteur films in their own way hmm but yeah, he doesn't make a film quite like this for for a long time. Uh, like, yeah, and it, it really, it feels like the conversation and it feels like the rain people. Like he had an idea for how to make a new movie and so he tried it out and it just, it just didn't work this time. And this happened to be the time that he had this great, uh i idea for uh for a new business venture writing on the movie. And I mean, I don't know if it had been like a different story. Like if 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 the Frederick Forrest character had been softer or, you know, if they if they hadn't gotten together in the end, or if there were more scenes of them being happy at the beginning. So then you wanted them to get back together at the end, or you find out that the Julia is actually You know, a shallow person, like maybe the film would have played better, like been more of a success, but I don't think this movie
1: would have I don't think there's a world where this movie's ever a success. It's so weird and it's so unique and it's so not like any movie made of its time. I don't think anyone would be like another movie this movie similar to is Nothing Lasts Forever, which is a movie that's never been released. You can get a bootleg copy of it if you're lucky. And that movie uh, is directed by Tom Schiller around the same time. I think it was like 82, 83, maybe even a little later. But that's a movie that's like like this, where it's all sets and it's all make-believe and fantasy, but for grownups. And that movie was such a failure that it was never even released in theaters. It never got released at all. It stars Bill Murray and Zach Galligan, and it's amazing. What? It's so good. <laughs> but I think these movies were just too ahead of its time. Like, I think... Like we said, like with Wes Anderson, I think if, if a Wes Anderson movie came out in 1981, I don't think people would have been into it. I don't think people were ready yet for this big, like people were into the fantasy of like a Star Wars, like stuff that was clearly like, "Oh, you bring the kids and you watch this thing, but the idea of like a, fan- a fantastic uh, theatrical fun movie for grownups ups. I don't think that was a thing yet. I think that was a thing that's going to come later that people are going to get into later. Like even this movie has that kind of Wes Anderson moment. Like Wes Anderson must have kind of liked this movie because it ends with the curtains closing, which is from in Rushmore. That Rushmore. Happened, where, the, where, the curtain, movie, yeah. where you have a curtain on set and you close it on the thing. It also feels very much like a Baz Luhrmann movie. Like this movie feels like Moulin Rouge or Romeo or Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet or the great, his version of The Great Gatsby. Like, like
0: all totally like artificial movies that want you to know like this is all fake. You know, this is all like pretend stuff Yeah, you're seeing and experiencing.
1: Yeah. And I think like the real Tannenbaum's would have not flown with people and in, in that movie would have been a failure in 1981. Like I think the idea of like it's R-rated. It's for grown-ups. There's real emotion in there but it feels like a fairy tale. What the fuck is this? So I think Coppola is like just totally ahead of the game on this kind of movie. <laughs> no,
0: you're right. And, and I mean, I guess in a way, um, uh, Franny, her color being red and Hank's color being green and then like the light will shift and just all of a sudden everything is green and it looks really cool. It, it looks almost, I don't know, like, like, uh, you know, like the, the way lighting will become strange in a David Lynch movie. Like that, in a way, is how in Wes Anderson movies, characters will wear the same clothing throughout the whole movie. Or even in
1: uh, Punch Drunk Love, the other Anderson, Paul Thomas, like Punch Drunk Love feels kind of like a child of this movie in a way.
0: You're right. Are- That's like, while I was watching this and, and reading about it, I thought that Coppola following up his big epic, you know, dark war movie into the heart of darkness... Following it up with a small, su- supposed to be small scale, light, simple little love story. That's that's almost exactly like Paul Thomas Anderson following up Magnolia. It's, you know, three hour epic about the interpersonal relationships and connectivity. And, you know, the almost like butterfly effect kind of uh, consequences type things. Following that up with... With, uh, like a, uh, with a 90 minute light little love story, which is still great. And that's one of my favorite movies ever that made me really get in, into movies. But the colors, you're right. Uh, Emma, Tom- Emma Watson is red and, and Adam Sandler is blue. Color is a huge part of that movie. And that movie is like a little, little fairy tale and it's so simple the character but everything in that movie is is it it's dreamlike thanks to the score and the cinematography and the characters are simple like he is you know like like a uh, an introvert and has a lot of like misplaced anger and she is just such this fairy tale figure and she's british even <laughs> that comes in and just like accepts him and and gentles him and uh, like it, it just all works because the whole thing feels like a fairy tale, and in One from the Heart, the atmosphere is a fairy tale. And Raul Julia, if he's not a fairy tale prince, I mean, who the fuck is? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Nastasia Kinski, you know, as well, you know, this be- beautiful princess. But these char- but these characters, I feel like it's just like he Coppola just misjudged the placing of these really uh, authentic feeling characters with authentic feeling problems, putting them in the fantasy world, just ruined then the fantasy of the whole movie. Like one from the heart doesn't feel from start to finish a fantasy, but it feels like the, these real people are in a fantasy and they're kind of ruining it
1: with their own, <laughs> with their own baggage. <laughs> but I like that. That's interesting. I think that's interesting. I think that that's why we're talking about this movie. And and, and this movie did eventually win people over many decades later. When it came out in 2003, critics kind of reassessed it. And people were like, oh, this was interesting. And some critics were like, why did people hate this so much? It clearly is a very interesting movie. It clearly is like a really different sort of movie. I think it's just hard when you're dealing with like, you just made the godfather movies and apocalypse now and then this is what you followed it up with like i think people were just like didn't know what the how to deal with that and also just like with apocalypse now it was so notorious in the news before it even came out with just sort of the out of hand production of it with how much it cost and how the studio was lying on the relying on this to be hit and like it became already such a story about the scandal of it that it made people maybe not wanna see the movie You're not even interested to see the movie because they were like, oh, that's like this weird failure that Francis Ford Coppola is making, which is stupid. And that's kind of what happened with Heaven's Gate and Ishtar. Like it's like those three movies had such a bad rep before they even came out that when it came out, people were just automatically writing it off just being like, oh, that must just be some crap because it costs too much or the director is an ecomaniac or whatever. And that's and, two, all, I like all three of those movies. I love Ishtar, I love Heaven's Gate, and I love
0: One Flew I don't love those movies. I <laughs> I do not like Heaven's Gate. We can Oh,
1: come on. That movie's great.
0: We can have an interesting tangent episode <laughs> on Heaven's Gate. I'll talk about the awesome nap I had. <laughs> Though I love in that it. movie, in that movie, Christopher Walken and then again in what's the That musical, the upsetting, non-enjoyable musical, Pennies from Heaven.
1: Oh, love that movie too.
0: (laughs) Also came out around this time. Both had Christopher Walken in them. Christopher Walken, to me, the best thing about both of those movies, they're also these sad, uh, you know, well, Pennies from Heaven is a fantasy. Heaven's Gate's supposed to be like the authentic, like this is what it was like in the West, because I say it was Michael Cimino Western. Mm -hmm. But like, Christopher Walken to me had the Raul Julia part in those movies where he's like the pleasant, uh, you know, handsome. Because Christopher Walken, you know, he's like 70 now, but he was once upon a time like a very, you know, handsome man with his own strange kind of charm. Uh, and like appears in those movies and then he leaves. And then once he leaves, I'm like, wait. Where did the star of the movie go? Why is the movie continuing on now that Christopher Walken is gone? Again, kind of how I felt with Raul Julia, like, wait, like, why isn't, why isn't the star of the movie getting the girl the way he, he the way he's supposed to, you know, in all movies since, since the silent era, since Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah. Oh wait, because Frederick, wait, wait, he's the star and Raul Julia is not the star? <laughs> anyway, get like not to bash Frederick Forrest, it's just this weird, mis, mis- like, uh, like maybe miscasting is is the word, but just I don't know. If like you put a really charismatic guy in the role that's not supposed to get the girl. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, "Pennies from Heaven" also like a new like take on the musical. We're gonna like deconstruct it. And rework it and make you rethink all the musicals. Though Coppola wasn't really trying to do that with One from the Heart.
1: No, I mean, it's it's weird. It's weird that it's considered a musical. Like, and people consider One from the Heart a musical, and it is sort of, but not really. It's like the soundtrack comments and plays with what you see in a way that other movies don't. But, like, if you're expecting to see people sing and dance, there's some dancing, but it's not a music. It's not really a musical. Like, it's a weird. It's a weird Coppola interpretation of a musical, I guess. Like, it's just, it's really interesting. Um, And you can get the soundtrack for it, highly recommend it, even if you don't want to watch this movie, but if you like Tom Waits and haven't heard the soundtrack, I think it's really, really good. Um, Oh, another thing before we wrap up, I think we're kind of heading towards the end. When you watch The Making Of, and maybe we can talk about this in the next episode, I swear to God, While directing this movie, Francis Coppa was dressed exactly like Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Was he wearing an apron? Minus the apron. Minus the blood-spattered apron. But he's wearing, like, the way his body is shaped while making the movie, because he gained some more weight post-apocalypse now. So he's got kind of this gut, and he's wearing this dress shirt, and he's got this tie, and the tie's kind of loosened. And he just kind of reminds me of how Leatherface (laughs) looks <laughs> in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because like, Leatherface has kind of like a tie and a tucked in his shirt and he's got kind of a gut and the way he's just like frantically running around especially at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre reminds me or that's what it excited Francis Ford Coppola looks like in the making of of him running around with his like loose tie and saying you just put an apron on and a leather bag over his head it's totally Leatherface. <laughs> Uh, I guess uh, the final couple
0: things uh, I want to bring up, at least I feel like I have to mention are in the commentary, Coppola talks about how um, in the scene where after Frederick Forrest wakes up from his night with Nastassia Kinski and thinks like, wait a minute, my girlfriend slept with that handsome guy I saw her with, and then kind of forgets all about her. He goes to Raul Julia's apartment and sneaks in through his skylight and like breaks in and Raul Julia who is like nude uh, you know gets up and puts on a robe and then he gets out his nunchucks <laughs> and <around> his nunchucks <laughs> that wasn't in originally in the script but he thought like hey like my 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 young cousin nicholas is always messing around with those uh it'd be great if Frau julia like did like did uh did that thing that uh, nicholas is always doing and so he just in the commentary, I was like, so yeah, like my cousin Nicholas would, would do this, this thing with, with, with the Asian, uh, you know, weapons. And so we called, I called him in. He was really upset because he was getting ready for a final in college and he had to come in and he showed Roll Julia how to use nunchucks.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Like, I wish cus- there was footage of Nicolas Cage showing Raul Julia like an 18-year-old Nicolas Cage with Raul Julia begrudgingly. <laughs> Jul-
0: a begrudging Nicolas Cage <laughs> showing up on set, showing Raul Julia how to use nunchucks, and then it, leaving.
1: It, he was his nephew. Nicolas Cage was coupled with nephew.
0: Yeah, he called him. He called him cousin. Cousin Nicholas in the in the commentary. But though he is, he is his nephew, right. technically. Yeah. And so I
1: guess that makes this the first collaboration between Nicolas Cage and Coppola, which we'll see a few more going forward. So that's very exciting. <laughs> and of course Nicolas Cage knows how to use checks. Like, of course. And it's good to know that Nicolas Cage has always been Nicolas Cage, even when he was a teenager. It's like, that is so him. That is such like, like, of course, that's what he's, he's doing. <laughs> yeah,
0: like if you tell me that right now, Nicolas Cage is in one of his, you know, mortgage to the hill castles with a Lamborghini in, in the main, you know, uh, that's been moved into the main grand hall and he's practicing nunchucks. I'm like, yeah, yeah, th- that sounds about right. But Nicholas Cage was also practicing nunchucks just you know, around Coppola family reunions, when he was eighteen, he's he's always been that person. He's he did he never lost it. He's always been that way.
1: <laughs> oh, that's the best! I'm so glad that you had that story.
0: Yeah. The other thing I just want to bring up is this was around the time when the the era of the director, the '70s director-driven movie era of the new Hollywood came to an end because these directors, Coppola, Scorsese, Bogdanovich, Spielberg even, they started to make their flops. And you can kind of see this if you just look up their filmographies from like the late 70s and early 80s, all these guys have like a flop or two. And I mean, nothing on, you know, no one bats a thousand every time if that's a correct metaphor i don't know sports
1: <laughs> i don't know
0: why i tried the sports metaphor even but yeah like uh scorsese has his big his big flop new york new york in 1977 which in a way has a lot in common with one from the heart it's a yep. musical meant to purposely evoke the musicals of the 40s but it's telling this like uh, story of a, a a a contemporary relationship story where the couple probably shouldn't end up together in new york new york they, they don't end up together and it's good but the movie is also not good
1: no you're wrong that movie also great
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm i'm just the world you, you have another podcast called the world is wrong and i guess i'm the world on that <laughs> I, I know people that that like new york new york And in in the wake of La La Land, that was a movie that got a reassessment from a lot of people. I've still only seen it once. Didn't care for it. I don't care to revisit it. Maybe I will one day. But yeah, that's also a movie where the sets are obviously sets. It wants you to know that everything is evocative of a movie from the 1940s. But the thing is, and Bogdanovich had the same thing with his movie, Nickelodeon, which was earlier in 1976. Nickelodeon is about movies in the silent era where everything looks really fake. But at the time, like those movies were made on set because the whole idea of shutting down as like a New York street to make a movie just hadn't, it didn't seem realistic to anyone. So the sets, they were fake, but they weren't meant to look fake they were trying to like be as real as they could and if it's fake well the movies aren't real so uh, the audience knows that so if this set this set that we built in the soundstage to look like venice in the movie top hat the uh, fred uh, fred astaire ginger rogers movie top hat obviously doesn't look like venice it looks like a set that's okay because everyone knows movies aren't real and we're not going to spend all this money to go to venice (laughs) and then now in the late 70s early 80s these filmmakers that grew up influenced by those movies make their movies homages to those movies calling back that uh, that sense of artifice but using it in an entirely different way you know where well yeah like you can go to venice and film there if you want just no one thought of that in 1935. Yeah, and so, yeah, this, uh, this sort of director driven, the, the studio bosses are just gonna write a, a blank check and let the young guys do whatever they want era it came to an end hard at the end of the 70s, start of the 80s, and then the studios got, all got sold to big corporations. And it turned into a whole different, uh, whole different business model. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. It's too bad that Zoetrope failed. It's a great idea. And actually, uh, Tyler Perry has recently succeeded at trying to do the same thing. Like he bought his own studio in Atlanta. I think is where he's from. <laughs> and he it's the biggest studio in America. It's huge. It's crazy big. And he has uh, just opened it like earlier this year uh, and he's going to use it to make goals, movies and other people's movies and TV shows. So maybe Tyler Perry can succeed where Francis Ford couple failed in having his own giant studio to make the things that he wants to make on his own terms.
0: The real, the real key to that. And I mean, I've seen a few Tyler Perry movies. I don't care for them. <laughs> I mean, but hey, he's doing his own thing. God bless him. Uh, The key to that is helping other people get their movies made, which is something that Coppola always wanted to do from like my friend George, I'm going to help him get his movie made and I'm going to make, like produce this person's movie and I'll attach my name to this so, you know, their movie can get made. When he made Zoetrope Studios, the problem was that by using up and I have to emphasize this all the sound stages on the zoetrope lot all nine sound stages like one he couldn't rent out then any sound stages to anybody else so he wasn't getting any income that he would have gotten if he had you know stuck to like only five sound stages
1: just make use one like normal movies do
0: (laughs) yeah and rented out the rest, and then Zoetrope would have been making money while he was making one from the heart. This, this Zoetrope Studios was making no money aside from like uh, you know, uh, distributing uh, like Kurosawa's movie and getting a, like a small cut. So, so one, you're making money, but then two, you're helping other people make their money. And Coppola has always been very uh, conscious about helping young, young people get their start in the filmmaking industry and in in the commentary tells a story about how zoetrope studios was nearby a high school that he briefly attended when he lived with in la for a brief time while he was in high school and while he was making one from the heart and had zoetrope studios he He was like, hey, like, I used to go to school here. Can I, like, give a lecture, like, you know, something about following your dreams and whatnot? And the school was like, yeah, sure. And so he, you know, had an assembly and gave a speech about, you know, following your dreams. And I went to this high school, and now I own that movie studio that's, like, right across the street. And he hired a bunch of those kids as apprentices. I don't know if they actually got paid. Maybe they got a stipend. And they worked as like apprentices and PAs, just kind of helping out uh, across the lot. And that was, I mean, that was like a great thing that he tried to do with Zoetrope that, you know, he really wanted to do, was authentic, was genuine about, was uh, helping other people get their movies made, get a start, even get an idea of what even goes into making a movie. And it's just a shame. It all... It all crumbled. Who
1: knows, like, if this movie was a hit and Snow was still existing as a studio, like I wonder what kind of movies he would have made or would it have eventually still gotten to this end point? Because like, could he not help but keep using these tools and these toys to make these crazy big ideas that he has until they just all fail? Because <laughs> you know, like, if, if you're a filmmaker like him or like David Lynch or like Darren Aronofsky, which I consider them to be like the great kind of like going from their brain and really just going with whatever thing without being told what to do. Like you're gonna make some movies that are totally inaccessible, like one from the heart. Like you're gonna make movies that just aren't gonna connect with most of the people in the world because most people will just can't get into art stuff or dream stuff. Like that's not, people would rather watch the Avengers save the world than some strange symbolic, you know, like thing with different colors. (laughs) And sometimes they can cross over, like David Lynch certainly can succeed with like Twin Peaks or like Yaranovsky with with the Black Swan. But then you still have your mothers in there, you still have like your Lost Highways, the movies that people are just kind of like, huh, what? Like, it's the gamble of being the true artist as a filmmaker, because it's different than being a painter, because you have to spend millions of dollars and have hundreds and thousands of other people help you make this dream come true. And I really, I really, I respect Coppola for making him in the heart the way that he did. Like it doesn't quite work for everybody. It does for me, but like, I really respect the hell out of him just like doing what he wanted to do. And that, and he got, this is the, like he, he will always be able to look at this movie and be like, that's the movie that I wanted. Even though it failed. It's not like one of those failures where it was taken away from the filmmaker And it was changed and they never will have the movie that that was in their head or it never happened. You know, like he got the movie he wanted. He can still now watch this movie and be like, that's the movie I wanted to make. And that's great.
0: I I have to appreciate this movie on all of those points you just said. Like I don't begrudge it for existing. I just wish that it hadn't had a whole studio existence writing on it. You know, like, he he makes a big, uh, epic, surreal, experimental, really, war movie. Now he's going to make this uh, smaller scale, I mean, really experimental art film that's also a, you know, romantic, musical drama that you like, like, you've never seen it before. Like, okay, that's fine. I watched the movie, like all right, I understand what you're going for. I, It didn't really work for me. I don't really like it. Uh, and then, but it, it had just so much like writing on it that it crashed and it crashed so hard. And there's all this like business distribution stuff. And he like finally pulled the movie from distribution. So there was, yeah, there was no way it could make, it, it could make its money back. And that, I mean, you know, sure it seemed like the right decision at the time for him to just like like well, they don't like this movie well, I'm just pulling it from theaters and it, there's no chance of it making money again. It was only in theaters for like a month, but like career wise this was like this huge this huge event for him, and it's this small little romantic romantic movie that it's like an hour and forty minutes you know yeah, yeah. you just you don't place a lot of wait on on a little on a, on a, a, a movie like that you know like, like gone with the wind three and a half hours so you know it's like this huge thing and all oh, the production was this huge thing and citizen Kane* was this huge thing but uh, yeah one from the heart
1: <laughs> so we don't know yet what our next episode will be we're gonna figure it out in the interim luckily it's October. So we're not watching any movies. It's not horror movies until November 1st. The, them's the rules, AJ. I've been following those rules for like a decade now. You that's how Vulcan
0: watch, Video Spirit will carry on.
1: You only watch horror movies from October 1st and the 31st, and that's it. No exceptions. Well, there maybe the exception of Jocktober, where you can watch some baseball, or Rocktober, where you can watch some music. Or <laughs> you can watch the Kiss movie. What the is Phantom, that movie called? McKiss Meets a Phantom of the Park? Yeah, Phantom of the Park. Yeah, you had two in one. But uh, So we're going to be taking a hiatus of watching horror movies for the next uh, 31 days. But when we get back, it's either going to be The Outsiders, which is the next logical movie he made, but there's the argument that he may have had a hand in making Hammett. He certainly did as a producer, but there's conflicting rumors Uh, depending on what website you go to, what book you read of the Vim Vendors movie, Hammett, which was produced by Zoetrope, starring Frederick Forrest. Supposedly they didn't like the Vim Vendors version and Coppola stepped in and finished it, kind of like what happened with Poltergeist, with Steve Spielberg coming in and and basically making uh, the, the, the *Toby Hooper Poltergeist. But just like Poltergeist, no one is concrete saying this is true or not. I mean, Vim Vendors swears that Hammett's his movie, but there's other sources that say that Coppola had a hand in it. So we may watch that just to see if that, if we feel that's true, if we see any Coppola in there, just for fun, kind of like what we did with Wade, we were with him being one of the million screenwriters on that. So that may be the next episode, or maybe it's the outsiders. We'll see like come the first week in November. We'll, uh, we'll surprise you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, All throughout October, I am, Every October, I try to watch 31 horror movies, not necessarily a movie a day. Sometimes I watch two a day and then take a day off, and I just watch horror TV that day. I just watch old episodes of Twilight Zone at the night gallery, but I am going to be doing like tiny little Leonard Maltin style write-ups on all, everything I watch throughout Shocktober, and you can uh, uh, read those if you'd like on uh, Twitter. at AJGO. Also on Letterboxd, under the same thing, at uh, AJGO. Otherwise, Brian, you have another
1: podcast going. Yes, so me and my good old friend Andras Jones have a podcast called The World is Wrong. And in the month of October, we're going to be doing episodes of horror movies that uh, are kind of like secret backdoor horror movies, sort of like how we talked about Apocalypse Now, and how it's like it's a horror movie, but it wasn't, you didn't know it's a horror movie, but it is a horror movie. And we're going to have a few episodes where we talk about sort of these secret horror films. Uh, I'm very excited. So please find that. You can find that uh, wherever there's podcasts. We're also carried on the Paperhouse Network. It's fun. And we're on Instagram. We should have an Instagram, AJ. What Were, were, were we too old for that? <laughs> I, I don't know that either
0: of us is, is photogenic enough for Instagram. <laughs>
1: Well, you don't have, to have pictures of us. You do pictures of like Frederick Forrest and other, you know. I guess you could not- just do
0: like <laughs> photos of Raul Julia. There It'll we go. The most just... popular podcast on
1: the internet. I'll just post photos of Raul Julia. <laughs> photos of Raul Julia. Yes. So yeah. Uh, well, this was great. I'm glad that we were able to, even though you were are crazy about this movie, talk about it in a way to make it, you know, because it's an interesting movie. Whether you like it or not, everyone should watch this movie. If you go to
0: ciscoebert.org, it's not a website either of us are affiliated with in any way. It's just this guy who's been collecting old Siskel and Ebert episodes and posting them on Uh, You can watch going back to their very first episode in the 70s. Earlier today, I watched them review one from the heart. Ebert did not like it. Siskel Gave it a thumbs up, a marginal thumbs up. Though at the time, they hadn't come up with thumbs. They were they were doing yes and no. Siskel <laughs> said, no <laughs> yeah, said he watched it once, didn't like it, and then he watched it again, and he appreciated it more and felt people should watch it, even though he wasn't all the way on board with it. Maybe he's where I am right now, where I feel like people should watch this movie if they get the chance, but I would just you know add the caveat of like this is not a traditional normal film but it is interesting enough to give it a watch um
1: and i love it this is a 4 out of this is a 5 out of 5 star movie oh i do a 0 to 5 rating and this is a 5
0: i do i do a 0 to 5 rating i hold off the 5 for like apocalypse now and godfather <laughs>
1: conversation
0: I, I would give this maybe like a two and a half
1: okay maybe i'll give this four and a half this is a four If apocalypse now is a five this is a four and a half
0: it's <laughs> like i don't like it but there's enough in it that i feel like it is worth a watch just to see the interesting stuff going on in it
1: yeah so
0: yeah we will return in november with we'll work it out in the meantime either hammett or the outsiders uh until then uh everyone out there stay safe have a happy shocktober watch all the horror movies and horror adjacent movies you can and register to vote uh, and register to vote i don't know if the deadline's passed or not but if you by now when this uploads uh register to vote and if you already have then be sure to get out there and vote and plan ahead because of long lines and the pandemic and all that stuff out there but yeah get out there and vote it's important it's really important yeah we will uh see you next time for the next Coppola movie whatever that is
1: it's got to be love, I've never felt this way. Oh, baby, this one's from my heart.